It's been a good morning, amen? Amen. My emotions are hovering about an inch or two below my throat right now, so hopefully I'll be able to make it through. I think I will. But I want to open in prayer. God, we know that you are already here, but we invite you to make yourself known, to come and work in our hearts and our minds and our souls as we seek to understand you, as we seek to live the lives you've called us to, as we seek to grow in community, to look like your body here on earth, to look like your hands and feet, uh, to fulfill the mission of the church as we gather. We know that you love us. We know that you have made a way for us. Help us to cling to that in the midst of all other storms in life. Help us to rest in that peace. Help us to rest in a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. In your name, Jesus, amen. So today we're continuing a series in the Psalms. We've been working through the Psalms for uh, a good part of the last sort of uh, two and a half months. And we've looked at a lot of different Psalms and the ways that they invite us into different types of honesty with God. Uh, uh, and look at uh, different ways that they interact with and, and feed and show us how to live in relationship with God through different seasons of our lives uh, and different parts of our journeys. And what we love about the Psalms, what, uh, what drew us as a pastoral team to the Psalms at the beginning is that they do this so well. They show us how to live in so many different ways and, and deal with so many different things from joy to anguish, from clarity to insecurity, from, from uh, security to total confusion. And, and today, we are going to talk about sin. And it's tough to talk about sin. Is this mic giving problems here? Should I switch to the pulpit? Or is it, oh, we're good? Okay, good. It's tough to talk about sin. And we can talk about grief, and we can talk about pain, and we can talk about suffering. Uh, and those aren't fun subjects to deal with, but generally that's external stuff. That's stuff that's happening to us. It's things that are outside of our control. Um, and so in some ways they're easier than sin. And sometimes when we talk about sin, we soften the language to make it easier. We talk about falling or failing or making mistakes or stumbling. Or we talk about sin in, in a very, very general kind of broad terms. We talk about how all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And we talk about how since Adam and Eve, not one human other than Jesus has lived without sin in their lives. So we're all in this together. Or, or sometimes we talk about sin and we bundle it immediately with grace. Our sins are covered and they are taken away from us. They are as far from us as the east is from the west. And that's true. That's, that's biblical truth and it is good to think about it that way. But sometimes we use that as an excuse not to examine the sin in our lives, to kind of ignore it or not to think about it too much. Because it is really tough to talk about the specific sin in our own lives. To look into the mirror and recognize the specific and real and tangible ways that we are hurting ourselves and that we are hurting the people around us. It's much harder to deal with the idea of sin, not in a general theological sense, but in a real-world sense. It's hard to talk about the jealousy you felt when you saw your neighbor drive up with his brand-new pickup. It's hard to talk about the way that you speak about that annoying coworker to your friends. It's hard to talk about that problem that you know that you have with alcohol. It's hard to talk about that anger and bitterness that you're holding on to from a past hurt, something that comes out 
at those closest around you. It's hard to talk about the stuff that you look at on your computer when no one else is around. It's hard to talk about the numbers that you fudged on your tax return. Mike already primed the pump for this a little bit last Sunday. He got us thinking about our sin, about our integrity in his message, uh, looking at a God who is everywhere and knows everything. But today we're going to dig a little bit deeper into that. All of us have destructive, ugly, hurtful, unholy sin in our lives. The question is not whether we deal or struggle with sin. We all do. I'm not trying to guilt you into anything here, but if you felt a twinge when I was reading that list, if your eyes dropped down a little, if your cheeks warmed up, if you're feeling a little like maybe you wish you had skipped out on this sermon, then you already know you sin. We all do. We all have those things. I'm certainly not exempt. And the question becomes, how do we respond to it? Do we shrug our shoulders? Do we hide it? Do we bury it deep down inside, hoping that people won't see it? Do we do what we want, knowing that we are freely covered by grace? So David in the psalm that we're getting into today, which is Psalm 51, he is responding to a specific, ugly, destructive, hurtful, unholy series of sins in his own life. David's sin here is the one, the, the sins that led him to write this psalm are talked about in 2 Samuel, verses, or chapters 11 and 12, and we know that story. Uh, and it's a shocking one, but I'll cover it kind of briefly here. David is home from war, which the author of Samuel is already poking a little bit at David because he mentions this is the season when kings go off to battle and David has stayed home. Before the story even gets going here, there's a sense that maybe David is neglecting his God-given responsibilities as king. Maybe it's an early indication here that things are not quite as they should be in David's soul. But he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. And he lusts after her, and he brings her to his castle, and he sleeps with her, his palace, I guess. And when she discovers she is pregnant, he has her husband, Uriah, come back from battle in hopes that he's going to sleep with her and believe that the baby is his. And now, by the way, he's dragging Bathsheba into this sin, expecting her to live with this lie as well. And when Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, returns he refuses, out of respect to those still fighting, to sleep with his wife. And then he gets Uriah drunk in hopes of lowering his defenses. And when that fails, David panics and orchestrates a plan, along with Joab, his army commander, to kill Uriah, again dragging other people into his sin. And the plot here works. Uriah is killed, and a watertight cover-up is organized. And David is home free, he thinks. He takes Uriah's widow Bathsheba to be his own wife, and then he sits with this sin in his life for many months, maybe more than a year, until God intervenes directly by sending a prophet, Nathan, to call David out on his sin. That first small choice, staying home from battle, not even really a sin, probably easy to justify, but a choice that maybe indicates where the heart is at, leads to a situation, seeing a woman bathing on a roof, also not a sin, an accident. But David's relationship with sin was obviously too comfortable. And an accident leads to lust. And lust, an internal sin, leads to an external sin, to adultery. And then to lies 
and manipulation and to murder. And it grows and it grows and it builds and it escalates. And David drags others into his sin, Bathsheba and Joab, not to mention the murders of Uriah himself and other innocent men set alongside to fight with Uriah. When sin is not dealt with, when it stays hidden, when it is unconfessed, it festers and it grows like a cancer, like a disease, and it spurs on more sin. David talks in the song that we're going to read, you'll see it, about cleansing with hyssop. And hyssop was used in ceremonial cleaning for lepers. A sickness where you literally watch your own body rot away before your eyes and feel nothing in the process. David says in in Psalm 32, another psalm that's responding to this same series of sins, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Sin poisons and isolates us. Not because God pushes us away, not because God doesn't forgive us, but because of what it does in our own hearts to our own ability to be in relationship with the people around us and God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had this to say about sin. He says, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous to his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. Even though we are saved, even though our sins have been forgiven by God, if we sit with the shame of them, if we hide our sin from others, if we allow ourselves to live in sin, intentionally choosing not to change, it will poison our relationships with others and with God. So David sinned. And now let's look at his response to that sin, where it turns around for him. When he is called out, when he finally recognizes and is honest with himself about how far he has fallen, Psalm 51 gives us this incredible model for how to respond when we recognize our own sin. It gives us insight into why somebody who messed up so royally, pun sort of intended, could still be called a man after God's own heart. Because it's not about the sin. We all sin. We've all fallen short. It's about our response to it. And this is how David responds. He starts by understanding his brokenness and God's power. And I'm going to read from Psalm 51. We'll be camped out here for most of the rest of the sermon. So if you haven't already, then I encourage you to turn there with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. David cries out for mercy here. There is no justification 
There is no explanation. There is no defense for what he has done. There's no attempt to try and soften the blow of his actions. In fact, in these six verses, he uses four different words to describe how badly he has messed up. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And then in verse 4, he says, I have done what is evil in your sight. Some commentators or theologians like to use these verses to talk about the distinctions between those things. What's the difference between a transgression and an iniquity and a sin and evil? And what are the distinctions there? And, and, and what constitutes one or the other? But I don't think that's very important. The point is that it's all sin. It's all things that separate us from God or damage that relationship. David is basically saying, I've messed up so badly in so many different ways. There is such a huge gap between where I am and where I want to be, between me and you, God, that I basically have to pull out a thesaurus to begin to express it, to be able to actually put that into words. David is totally raw and honest about his own mistakes, and that's an important lesson for us when we keep talking about this messy honesty that the Psalms gives us permission to have. This is an example of that. And David recognizes, too, that sin is a part of his nature. Sinful at birth, he says in verse 5. In fact, he corrects himself and says, not just from birth sinful, but sinful from the time my mother conceived me. But he doesn't use this as an excuse. He says, you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. He knows what God requires of him. And while he acknowledges his basic sinful nature, he doesn't use it as a reason for God to withhold judgment, instead appealing to God's mercy and love, calling on God to do what David knows he can never do on his own, blot out the transgression, wash away the iniquity, cleanse him from sin. There's one other thing I want to point out here in this first chunk of verses. It's a bit of a side note, but it, it, it bothered me at first when I read it. And, and maybe it bothers you too a little bit. David in verse 4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned. And I read that, and I go, How would Uriah, or Bathsheba, or the army, or the Israelites in general feel about David saying that? I'm pretty sure that David sinned against a lot more than just God. So what is he saying here? I, I think what's happening here is that David is recognizing God's presence in all things. His power over all things. God created man. He built the universe. All people are made in his image. And God is the one who established good, who told us how to live, who teaches us right from wrong, who teaches us what it means to be righteous, who establishes the law. And so David is saying... Ultimately, when I hurt anyone else, when I break any law, when I disrupt the order of creation that you have created in any form, what I'm doing is I'm hurting you, God. He's not ignoring or absolving himself of what he's done to other people. He's recognizing that it all comes back to God and his glory. And so that's an important lesson for us, I think, to see God in the people around us, to recognize that in the relationships that we have on earth, those are opportunities to glorify God in the way that we treat other people and recognizing that when we sin against others, when we hurt others, we are ultimately hurting our Creator and Heavenly Father as well. It all comes back to God. So David recognizes his problem and then he asks for help. Verses 7 to 12 read like this. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then in verses 16 and 17, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. David recognizes this gap between where he is and where he wants to be. He sees what trying to take things into his own hands accomplishes, what following his desires without looking to God accomplishes, and that brings him death, literal death for Uriah. And so he reaches up to God and he says, help. He says, cleanse me, wash me, restore my body, my spirit, my heart, my bones. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to have joy in your salvation. And then in verses 16 and 17, he hits the nail on the head in expressing his repentance. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. And this truth flows through the whole Bible. We see this come up over and over again. When Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say, blessed are those that follow the law. Blessed are those that give burnt offerings. Blessed are those who know all the prayers. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God says that if we approach in humility, in recognition of our brokenness, in contrition, not trying to prove that we're good enough, not trying to show outwardly that we can do what's necessary, recognizing that we're lost without him, that is how we are blessed. That is how we enter the kingdom of God. He will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Our God is the God who welcomes a prodigal son back with open arms. And so when we are overwhelmed by our sin, when we recognize in our hearts how we have messed up and we're honest about that with God and we ask him for help, our heavenly father is the giver of good gifts and he will welcome us back with open arms. And David understood that. So he recognizes his problem. He asks for help. And what comes out of all of this? When we approach God in our brokenness and recognize our need for him and come with his contrite spirit and God restores us and he does these things, he blots out our iniquities, he teaches our crushed bones to rejoice, then what does David say is the result of this? It's change in our lives. It's a difference from before to after. In verses 13 to 15 he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. David's first response when he is restored or cleaned or made pure or brought back into right relationship with God is to share that good news with others and to praise God. I will teach others your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. David turns into an evangelist. He desperately wants others to understand the good news that he understands here. Open up my lips, Lord, and I will sing of your righteousness. 
In the last two verses, verses 18 and 19, they build on this. It says, May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. So maybe the keeners among you noticed this. Just a few verses earlier, David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. Now, Verses later, in the same psalm, he says, Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And the word that's important here is righteous. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. The outer expression of our faith, the way that we live our lives, is important. The way that we glorify God is important. Fleeing from sin is important, but it only matters if it's a reflection of what's on the inside. If we're putting up sin barriers between us and God, if we are placing other things in our lives on a higher level than God, that he's got no interest in lip service, in sacrifice. You can serve on as many committees as you want. You can be as faithful a church attender as you want. You can be as generous a tither. You can be as good a volunteer as you want to be. But it's not, if it's not a reflection of a broken heart and a contrite spirit, then it has no value to God. He doesn't want it. Sometimes we hear those verses about God not wanting sacrifice. We read that and we go, well, apparently God doesn't care how I live my life. As long as I'm good on the inside, it doesn't matter what I do on the outside. But we see here that he does care. It does matter to him. He does love it. The sacrifices that we give today, the ways that we choose to spend our time and money, the ways that we worship, the community that we build in church, the time that we spend in prayer, in service, has huge significance to God. He loves that. He desires it. It's a burnt incense floating up to heaven and pleasing our Heavenly Father, but only if it is a reflection of what is going on on the inside. Only if it is an outpouring of what has changed in our hearts. So, in the last few minutes here, I want to go over three questions that you can ask yourself about your own relationship with sin. Three red flags, maybe, that can indicate signs of trouble or things to watch out for. So the first question is this. Do you see the sin in your life? If you don't think you have a problem, you have a big problem. If you believe that you're doing well enough on your own, that you basically have it under control, that you are good enough to please God by your own strength, then I would challenge you that you are fundamentally missing the point of the gospel message. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. None of us are righteous. No, not one. All of us are in desperate need of a Savior to rescue us from our fallenness. So if we think that we are righteous, that we've got it figured out on our own, that we have no problems with sin in our lives, we need to get our eyes checked. Sometimes when I was a teenager, I would watch movies with my friends, and I'd come home and I'd tell my parents, I just watched this super funny comedy or this action movie. We should totally watch it sometime as a family. It was awesome. And so we'd rent it. And my younger siblings and my parents and I, we would sit down, we would watch this movie, and all of a sudden these words that I did not hear the first time would show up. Or these scantily clad women that I did not remember showing up in that scene would be there. Or these pieces of violence that got way more gruesome as I was sitting in the room with my parents and I would sink lower and lower into the couch as every four-letter word and every bit of violence or sexuality happened, keenly aware, all of a sudden totally aware of how raunchy or inappropriate this movie was, wondering if somehow I picked up a different version of it. When my parents were not in the room, there was no problem. But when my mom and my dad or my younger siblings were there, suddenly I was totally tuned in to the negative things that I was filling my head with. 
if we forget that God is in the room, it's easy to start to forget about the sin in our lives, about the things that we're doing wrong, about the evil that's in our hearts. If we are in an active relationship with God, sin should sting a little. It should make us cringe. If we know that God is real and here and in the room with us and paying attention to us, that's going to change the way that we think about sin in our lives. So first, do you see that sin? Second, if you see it, does it bother you? I'm not talking here about wallowing in your sin or about beating yourself up about what's going wrong. If we get fixated on how bad and how broken and how miserable we are, if all we are thinking about is, is messing up or falling short, well, that, that's not what God is calling to us either. He's called us to a life of freedom. But apathy towards your sin is a huge red flag. The Bible has really strong words for people, for Christians, who understand that they sin and just shrug their shoulders and ignore it. Uh, Hebrews 10 carries strong condemnation for people like this. It says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. That's really scary, actually. It's important to note here that the author of Hebrews is very intentional about his word choice. Sinning does not separate us from God. We are covered, but continuing to sin deliberately, intentionally, systematically, living a life against what God has called us to, when we know better, the author of Hebrews says, puts us at risk. And when we shrug our shoulders enough, and when we ignore our conscience enough, and when we push out the Holy Spirit enough, it starts to get quieter and quieter, and we start to drift towards that first red flag, not even thinking that we have a problem with this. I remember my grandpa, he was a missionary for many years up north. He was a godly man. He loved Jesus. And he used to say that if he started to roll through stop signs, if he didn't make a proper stop, that's when he knew that he needed to get intentional about his relationship with God. It was his own personal red flag, his canary in a coal mine that he set up in his life to warn him when things weren't as they should be. It was just this small thing. But he knew if he started treating sin, even minor sin, even earthly law, if he started treating that casually, he had to hit a reset button because that was the start of a dangerous road. So the third question is this. If you see it, does it bother you? And if it bothers you, do you change? I had a mentor in my life growing up who had this joke he would always tell, and it wasn't very funny. Some of you have probably heard this one before, so I apologize. It really isn't funny. Don't get excited for anything here. This is the joke. He was not a good joke teller. Two successful men were walking by Carnegie Hall, and the first man looks at the second and says, you know, I always wanted to play piano at Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall is this big opera house. And the second man says, no, you didn't. That's the whole joke. So if you're as confused as I was when I first heard it, let me explain it a little bit. The second man is saying, I don't care what you tell me. I don't care if you tell me that you wanted to play piano at Carnegie Hall. If you lived your entire life and you didn't take lessons and you never put any effort towards learning the piano, you never even got started down that path, then you can't honestly tell me you ever really wanted it. You might have liked the idea of it. You might have daydreamed about it. You might have been jealous of those who were good piano players, but you never actually truly wanted it. Because if you truly wanted it, 
you would have taken the lessons. The first man's actions spoke louder than his words. And, and we can speak big words about hating sin. We can make all the right outward demonstrations. We can even trick ourselves into believing that we care a lot about this. We care. We wish things were different. We can imagine less sin in our lives. But if there's no change, if there are no active steps towards making a difference in our lives, then it's just like that first man. He can talk all he wants about learning the piano, about wanting to play at Carnegie Hall, but he can believe in himself that he wanted it. But the second man knows the truth. He didn't actually want it because then his life would have looked different. It's not about being perfect. It's not about never sinning again. It's not even about never repeating the same sins or never falling into some of the same traps. But it's about an effort that shows up in more than just how we talk about our sin. It's about making a change in our lives. It's about putting a filter on our internet. It's about finding somebody to keep us accountable. It's about not hanging out with or engaging in conversation with people who we know bring out gossip and negative talk in us. It's about taking time to actively engage and wrestle with God about these problems, about bringing these things openly to Him in messy honesty and asking for His help. We can't do it on our own. We know that, and David knew that. He knew that he was at the mercy of God, but he also knew that God was merciful. And when sin ate him away on the inside, when he recognized his sin, when he recognized the destruction it was bringing to his life, he went to God and was messily honest about it. And he talked about what was going to change in his life. His mouth would declare his praise, David said, and he would teach transgressors God's ways, and he would make offerings and sacrifices to God in the temple. And we see that he did. Psalm 32, which is written a time after this one, it's an instructive psalm for Israel, and it's talking about the same sin. And David is saying and doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He's teaching. He's saying, learn from my mistakes. Confess your sin. Trust in God's love. Use my life as an example and glorify him. So when we think about sin in our lives, big or small, let David's response in Psalm 51 serve as a template. And in fact, what we're going to do is we're going to have the worship team come up and play a closing song. Uh, but what I want you to do is to use it as preparation for the benediction. I want you to take time during the song to do sort of a personal inventory. Is there unresolved, unrepented sin in your life, big or small? Have you gotten lazy towards sin? Are there things that you know that you need to let go of, that you need to kill off in your life? that are poisoning you, but you're too comfortable, or they're too fun, or too convenient? Are there things in your life that are replacing God, that have become more important than Him? So I want you to take this psalm, and take time to process this. And then in closing, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come up and read Psalm 51, in its entirety. And if you want to start fresh, and if you want to be made clean, if you feel that you need to hit that reset button, then I encourage you to pray it silently along with me. This isn't about avoiding hell. This isn't about saying the right words. It's not about making yourself feel better. It's about your relationship with God and your relationship with others. It's about recognizing your constant need for a Savior. And it's about our pursuit to look like the body of Christ together. I confess 
I fall apart You're the one that guides my heart Lord, I need you, oh, I need you Every hour I need you My one defense, my righteousness Oh God, how I need you Where sin runs deep, your grace is more Where grace is found, is where you are And where you are, Lord, I am and pray along silently with me as I read. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. 
according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Go in peace.